The Eagle and Child, episode 42. Mere Christianity, retrospective. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today I'm looking back on this past year with my friend, co-host, confederate, counsellor, Matt. David, what an honour, genuinely an honour it has been to have gone on this journey with you. I can personally say I, I would never have imagined, you know, 42 episodes later, you know, pretty much over a year, where we would have been with this. I would never have thought that we would have such a devoted and wonderful base of listeners. I would never have thought that we would have had people emailing us, would you say, on a weekly basis with questions? Recently, yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that, how awesome is that, that people are engaging with this book through the podcast and asking questions that go even beyond what we talk about? And then the encouraging words that we get from people that are touched by it. I mean, this has been one of the, the greater privileges of the last 12 months of my life. And none of this would be possible without you. We have to always remember, <laughs> and listeners don't realize, you had the entire idea behind this. You came to me with this idea. It was your initiative. Uh, and so if you, I don't know if you're ever debating whether you should do this or not, but I'm glad you, you the yes won out and you came to do this. There was fairly little debate once you and I had met at that party and we'd started talking C.S. Lewis. I decided... You saw my enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, he, he's a sucker. He'll say yes. <laughs> I, I was definitely certain on starting a book club. And it really wasn't long after that before I thought, no, we need to do this properly. We need to do a podcast. The only thing I did debate was whether or not we do it together for the entire book or whether... We bring in different people for book one, book two, book three, book four. But it wasn't long after we started book one that I thought, no, we've got a good thing going here. We've got a good rapport. Yeah, I want to I see through to the end of this book with Matt. <laughs> and now we're starting a second in a video series. So I'm honored to know that, I, first of all, I didn't know any of this listeners. And so this is like that moment. Have you ever had this where you're four or five months into a relationship with someone uh, and... You start you and then her and you're talking about the very first month and the way you're viewing it. And you've never, you're essentially <laughs> the other person telling you their side of the, the process and the doubts that they had and the things they overcame. It's essentially what you're doing right now. Yes, I've, I've, I've had that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but, but as we say this, what a gift to what we have to look forward to with the second season, The Great Divorce, our favorite book, the video series that we've already mentioned. Uh, the website that we'll be bringing out here pretty soon. I mean, there's there's so much. This is just literally the beginning of this journey. As well as recently, I've had confirmation from a whole bunch of different people that I'm going to get to do after hours interviews with. So some noted C.S. Lewis scholars and one author that I'm particularly excited to talk to, Patty Callahan, who wrote that book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Yeah, David. David has been incredibly devious in his way of, <laughs> of getting getting to I was trying to think of a great word there but of, of getting to people and to getting them on this podcast I'm just so impressed with his his forwardness if you don't ask the answers always no 100 percent of shots not taken don't go in Michael Scott is that what that's from <laughs> no it's 
I think it's Wayne Gretzky, but in the TV show The Office, Michael Scott quotes himself quoting Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> I've heard a lot about this over Thanksgiving. I was at a friend's house uh, with his family. They invited me, and he used to watch The Office all the time. And I've never seen a full episode of The Office. You're missing out, man. All I know is I'm so impressed with that John Krasinski, whatever his name is in The Office, mm-hmm. how he went from that guy to a Navy SEAL in an Amazon Prime series and the 13 hours Benghazi. You want to talk about a transformation? That guy's incredible. I also thoroughly recommend The Quiet Place, which... Oh, so good. He acted, I think he was the director as well. Easily my favorite movie of the last year. And his wife is in it, who is probably the most amazing person, Emily Blunt. She does some serious acting. Yeah. Loved it. She does. Well, shall we jump to the quote of the day? Go for it. This comes from Out of the Silent Planet, which is one of C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy books. Yes, the first one. The first one, yes. A pleasure is full-grown only when it is remembered. And today, we have the opportunity to remember the pleasure of the past year. Excellent. And... Today, we are drinking single malt scotch whiskey. We were going to be drinking something different, but one of us, I'm not going to say who, (laughs) one of us didn't have the self-discipline to wait until season two, and he'd already opened it before I'd left work. (laughs) David, David sends me a text message saying we're going to be waiting to drink this variety pack for the beginning of season two, and I'm like, there is no way I can wait that long. And so today, as I was prepping for this episode and thinking through some of the stuff I want to chat about, I'm like, I got to get started. I can't wait. So listeners, we are drinking Glenmorangie. As Matt said, we've got a variety pack. So we have four different variants of Glenmorangie. If you follow us on Twitter or Instagram, you will have seen this. And so without any further ado, cheers. Cheers. Oh. I've never had Glenmorangie, and I would say, so the one that I had earlier today, by the way, was a different one than this listener, so this is my first. Matt, Matt, you're giving it away that you were the one that started drinking early. (laughs) I think everyone knows who's the weak one in this relationship, (laughs) but this is the first time I've had this one, and I will say, this is the first thing that comes really close to Macallan for me in terms of flavor. I like this a lot. Glenmorangie is the scotch that I recommend to people who either haven't really drunk much scotch before or who generally shy away from the peatier end of the spectrum. Just this other week, we had a whiskey tasting at my house. A bunch of my friends who drink whiskey regularly. We invited a bunch of people who had never tried it before, and we walked them through some bourbon, some rye, and then into the beautiful land that is scotch. And this is actually the second time we've done this, and both times the Glenmorangies have been exceptionally popular among those who are new to Scotch. Well, as as you were saying this, I was noticing what I like about it is I would argue it's better than the Macallan Neat. This is a very good Scotch Neat. Oh, completely. It it doesn't burn as much on your throat. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's, uh, pretty sweet. You have some lovely notes, both in taste and in perfume. Well, and it should be noted, listeners, that this scotch is being chased down by what I've now recently learned is pronounced La Croix. La Croix. Okay, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I, this is going to sound really stupid, but I didn't know that means 
the cross, which is so fitting for this podcast. Exactly. And I'm glad that you shared with Americans how this is meant to be pronounced, because LaCroix just sounds terrible to me. I know. I feel like I'm going to become <laughs> pretty sophisticated when I tell people, I'll take a LaCroix. <laughs> or I'll be considered a pedantic, arrogant jerk. I'm okay with that. <laughs> it's a fine line between that and sophistication. <laughs> so, Matt, what was it like going through mere Christianity this time with me? What was it like going through it over the course of a year? That's a good question. Because most people don't read books like that. They don't go through it, A, with somebody else, and B, over the course of 12 months. Well, first of all, the short answer is it was a pleasure, David. <laughs> that was the right answer. <laughs> um, well, for, I comprehended way more. Yeah, I thought, I thought the same thing. Going through it more slowly meant we could go through it more thoroughly. To answer a little bit more specifically your direct question of with you, you're a very intelligent person. And so it was nice to essentially, as I'm reading the show notes prior to our episode, to have someone synthesizing it for me. Some of the topics I was thinking as I'm reading this, this is really, I'm not entirely sure what he means here, but you know what? I bet David knows. <laughs> and so I would look forward, to our, our, our look forward to our conversation, knowing that you'll be able to unpack it for me. To be honest, too, on the other side, there was a bit of a growing for me. So I'm a big picture kind of person. I like the big themes, the big picture. You on every episode bring huge amounts of detail in, in a great way. And, and it was, and as I got used to it, it was wonderful, but it's not how I usually think. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was unique going on that journey. You know, as I read a chapter, when I would make my own notes, I would leave a lot of stuff out that you put brought in. I'd say, all right, here are the three big themes. And I'll just kind of talk casually about them. But in your notes, you would go very much into detail, which there's no right or wrong. Um, it was just different. And so that, that required some change. I would say for me, it was the reverse of that. Because we were trying to communicate the contents of each chapter to people who perhaps have never read it, it forced me to try and look at the heart of each chapter and making sure that that came across clearly in the notes, even though we were going into detail. I think you did a really good job with that. Thank you. Yeah. It, it, there's, a, there's only a few chapters. I'm like, man, Lewis is all over the place here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you brought it together nicely. What about you? Well, for me, going through it slowly meant I got to see the interconnectedness of Lewis's thought. Over the past two days, I've listened to all of Mere Christianity on audio at high speed. <laughs> Is this your eighth or ninth time? Oh, we're easily into double digits. Okay. <laughs> Maybe triple, who knows. Uh, <laughs> but I noticed so many little themes or a phrase that alludes to something that he either was going to speak about in a subsequent chapter or that he'd already addressed. So the first time I went through Mere Christianity, I remember being very impressed by it. But going through it this time, I just see how all of the things that Lewis is communicating connect to one another. That there's a holistic idea of Christianity that he's trying to communicate. One of the ideas he comes back to again and again is that religion is reality. It, religion theology speaks about the way things are. Mm. And Christianity is a response to that. So everything 
makes sense in relation to each other. I, I couldn't agree more with that. I was almost identical. I was so impressed when I read it the first time, but I was only a junior in college, had very little theology knowledge, if you want to call it that. Just remember being drawn to the beauty of it this time to see the depth of the theology, the complexity, the interconnectedness that you said, holy cow, this book is incredible. What shocked me about it was it's called Mere Christianity. That title is deceptive. Because if you just ask someone, what would you think Mere Christianity is about? Ah, the basics. There's nothing basic about this book. I mean, it goes into incredible depth and complexity. But it gets to the core of the issues. <laughs> but the issues are complex. <laughs> yes, and he doesn't give it a superficial explanation. That's exactly right. The other thing that I thought when I was reflecting on that, this question, how is reading this book this time and in this way affected me, is the very fact that it has changed me, in particularly in the way that I tend to argue, <laughs> in the way I tend to teach. You never argue, David. Never, never. But in the way that I, I teach when, I give, when I'm giving talks, I notice that I now use many more analogies than I did previously. So do I, actually. I, well, I, I steal all of Lewis's. Well, exactly. Actually, one thing there, I, I've really tried to resist the, well, Lewis says. <laughs> I do that all the time. I don't resist it. Well, I just figure my friends are now sick of that. <laughs> so I'm part of a, a men's huddle and uh, we meet a couple of times a month and share our lives and talk about our, our journey. But I've, what I've taken to doing is I'll usually give one Lewis quotation and identify it as such. I will usually quote MacDonald, but it's really Lewis quoting MacDonald. And then one I'll just slightly paraphrase and pass off as my own. <laughs> I love it. That is so priceless. Even before this podcast, I, I loved Lewis. And, and to the point where I had a friend when I was giving a talk for the local church community, St. Bridget's, on a retreat, he said to me, Matt, please limit it to only two C.S. Lewis quotes. <laughs> so I already had a problem before this. Now, almost any theological conversation I have with someone, I'm like, that's a really good point. Actually, Lewis says that in Mere Christianity. I did that today. I was literally today talking to a friend for like an hour, and I'm, I said probably three or four times, you're exactly right. Lewis brings it up in Mere Christianity. And I, I look at it as I'm affirming their points with <laughs> the credibility of C.S. Lewis. No one has said they're sick of it yet. You have nice friends. <laughs> I do. I do. Returning to this idea of it changing me, a couple of weeks ago, I gave a talk to a confirmation group, and the topic I was given was, what is love? Yeah, easy. <laughs> well, I was thinking about it as I was listening through mere Christianity again for these last couple of days, and I realized how much of Lewis I drew in and didn't even really think about it. Because when I was talking about what is love, I naturally went to book four of mere Christianity, where we talk about the life of the Trinity. And the fact that God himself is this relationship of love, this community of love, and the fact that Jesus came to draw us up into this community of love, this process of theosis. And, and one thing where I did particularly chuckle was at the start of book four, when Lewis says that, I'm going to tell you something that a lot of people have told me that I shouldn't say. You know, just give people good old religion. Don't give them deep theology. I said something almost identical to these teenagers I said, you know, when I was talking to some of my friends about what I was going to talk to you about tonight, about the life of the Trinity, they went, oof, 
that's probably a little bit too deep. Why don't you back off a little bit? I was like, no, I think you guys can get something out of this. There's, there's, there's some truth here worth knowing. All right. I'm, I'm, this is truly divine providence that you're bringing this up because I just got the greatest privilege and honor to be the confirmation sponsor for my cousin. What, what? And she, I know, right? I was so touched. <laughs> and and she's, she's so beyond her years for an eighth grader. She's, she's very deep in her prayer life, uh, very smart individual. One of those children at a young age, very precocious, well beyond her years. So I'm thinking through here, all right, I'm taking this very seriously. I'm going to create a little mini course that she's going to go through. <laughs> but my issue is I'm, I'm, I'm thinking all this deep theology. And a friend told me, you know, it's probably too much. I don't think it's going to be too much. I like the David approach of, you know what? I think she'll get stuff from it. And I think it's okay to bring some of the deeper theology, uh, theosis that we've been talking about. I think she can handle it. Exactly. You don't want to give her milk. You want to give her meat and strong beer. Yeah, I don't want to give her watered-down Christianity. Looking at it from my perspective, the way it's changed me, before getting into potentially one of the biggest theological points I got from it, one of the more life, just high-level ways that's impacted me is just the joy and the gratitude that this book, this journey, this podcast has been for me. And we've had, as we've already mentioned in the beginning, we have so many listeners emailing us talking about how they're coming back to Christianity. We've had some talk about how they're exploring their faith uh, and some of these issues on a deeper level. And I don't know about you, but I have days that aren't as good as other days and days I'm struggling and days I'm just feeling down. And, and you always send me these screenshots of what people in these emails that they're saying. I'm like, you know what, whatever else happens in life, this is what really matters. I mean, the, the chance to be able to spread the joy of the gospel through this, I mean, that that's genuinely, I'm not just saying this to say this, it's impacted me because there's a joy that's come from doing this every week. There's a gratitude that's developed as I reflect on the opportunity to do this. I think of Wild at Heart. We've mentioned that book a couple of times throughout this podcast. He talks about these three levels of adventure, and it's very important for us to have that adventure in our lives. The highest level of adventure is the pursuit of another individual for the kingdom of God. There's no greater adventure than trying to bring the kingdom because it's scary. People can reject it. People could listen to this and say, David and Matt are complete idiots. Uh, They're completely wrong. (laughs) Probably. And so this is an adventure for us. And it's been so incredible how receptive listeners have been. And so that's been transformational to me and inspiring. Well, speaking of Providence, the song that I've been listening to this week, actually on RestlessPilgrim.net, every Monday morning I will post a a song of some description that I'm listening to. And this week it was a song from Casting Crowns, my all-time favorite Christian band, and it's called Only Jesus. Here's the chorus. And I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. And I, I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him. Only Jesus. As you say, what could be what could be better? Amen to that. By the way, side note: Have you heard uh, Lauren Daigle's new album? No. Oh, had you ever heard her heard her old album? Yes. Okay, so you know her style. Mm-hmm. This one is just skyrocketing her. They're calling her the Christian version of Adele. She was on the Ellen Show. <laughs> like, no joke. She was invited on the Ellen Show. It was a pretty big deal. Her, her it skyrocketed to I think number two or number one on the iTunes general list, not just a Christian. 
uh, only for like a couple weeks, but still, that's incredible for a Christian artist. And it is to die for. I'll check it out. Listen to love like that. Love like this. But one one final point I'd say about how this has changed me. So that's just been a high life uh, level perspective. We're going to talk about some of the major themes. So I'm just going to briefly touch on this now for time's sake. But the whole fourth book has revolutionized the way that I've looked at the Christian journey. And we're going to expand on it shortly. Mm -hmm. But the divine life, theosis, zoe, new men, all these terms you guys have heard. This is new to me. I mean, I've heard some of this in bits and pieces, but Lewis packaged it so well that this is the point of Christianity. And this whole concept, this whole idea can be summarized in St. Athanasius. God became man so man could become God, lowercase g. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think when I first went through mere Christianity, the book that I found, not so much the weakest, but the one that didn't engage me as much was chapter four. But this time around, front and center. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I, when I first went through this, I thought this is, you don't see the importance of it. But when we went through it this slowly, I was like, this is everything. This is, have you ever listened to Simon Sinek? The name sounds familiar, but I don't think so. He's a pretty famous talking to the millennials, marketing campaign guy. He's got a really big YouTube presence. Uh, long story short, he talks about the why. Why, why do people buy Apple's products? Why do some of these companies really separate themselves from the pack? It's the why, and they get you to buy into the why. Well, book four is the why of Christianity. Because if Christianity told its story as this is a good moral teaching, or this will turn you into good little boys, or some other pretty pathetic story, narrative, that's not a very good why. It's not compelling. It's not compelling, but what about if someone tells you you can be a part of this great adventure where you will participate in the Trinity, the divine life, you will become a completely new person, not a better person, a transformed individual. That's the why. That's why you do this. Completely. It, it really recasts the whole Christian story and the Christian journey. One of the books that I've read over the course of this year, because that's another impact that this podcast has had on me, I've read so many biographies of Lewis. But I've also <laughs> read this book by George Marsden, which is a biography not of Lewis, but of mere Christianity. Actually telling the story of those radio talks, the initial books, them being brought together into a single volume, and how it was received by the world and the Christian community. I never knew you read that book. You need to read my blog more. <laughs> and talk about, first of all, 30 seconds, I know, talk about divine providence. Lewis didn't even tend to write this book. It just came about through a series of talks. And now it became like the most influential apologetics books in the world. If that's not God working in his way, I don't know what is. Quite. So returning to Theosis, I said that it recasts the Christian journey. In his book, George Marsden, he gives a summary drawing from all of the comparisons that Lewis uses as to what it means to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian, passing from death to life, is like joining a campaign of sabotage, like falling at someone's feet or putting yourself in someone's hands, like taking on board fuel or food, like laying down your rebel arms and surrendering, like saying sorry, laying yourself open, turning full speed astern. It's like killing part of yourself, like learning to walk or to write, like buying God a present with his own money. 
It's like a drowning man clutching at a rescuer's hand, like a tin soldier or a statue becoming alive, like waking up after a long sleep, like getting close to someone or becoming infected, like dressing up or pretending or playing. It's like emerging from the womb or hatching from an egg. It's like a compass needle swinging to north, or a cottage being made into a palace, or a field being ploughed and re-sown, or a horse turning into a pegasus, or a greenhouse roof becoming bright in the sunlight. It's like coming around from anaesthetic, like coming out of the wind, like going home. Isn't that beautiful? That's slow clap worthy. Well, that's all for George Marsden, not me. He, that that was brilliant. The whole time I'm listening to that, I was dying to start clapping halfway through that, and I almost wanted you to shut up so I could clap sooner, <laughs> because I'm like, he just pulled in every analogy Lewis used in the most brilliant way possible. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you brought that in. So, what themes or ideas particularly popped out to you in this reading of Mere Christianity? Starting with the biggest. We've already mentioned it, so we'll just hit it briefly here. But theosis, pretty much the bulk of book four, that idea that we're drawn up into the divine life, into the Trinitarian love. You mentioned it earlier, the the father and the son, the love between them uh, brings out that Holy Spirit. And as we get closer to that, as we participate in that, that love infects us and we're transformed through that. That to me, is one of the biggest themes here, one of the most transformational ones. A sub-point that we haven't mentioned yet is the question of how do we, how do we engage in this theosis? I think that's something that, that's natural to me and my thought here on a daily basis, on a weekly basis in our lives. And Lewis, interestingly enough, answers this well before he really explains it in, I think it's book two. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and he talks about how do we participate in the divine life. He kind of teases us there and doesn't really explain it till later. And he, he uses the three Bs, baptism, belief, bread, holy communion, whatever you want to call it. That to me was really transformational because notice that none of those require a will or an effort. Uh, or I think, as you've put it once, an elbow grease. <laughs> there, there, there are these mechanisms that we wouldn't have thought of. Water, bread, these material things. Belief is just is, is saying this yes to God and, and opening ourselves up to him. Just by doing that and participating in that, God transmits his divine life to us. Theosis is happening. Now, with the caveat that Lewis puts at the end, this is an excuse for not attempting to imitate Christ's life. That's very important still, and, and we do need to have that effort and that will. But just the role of, of these graces that are transmitted through these material things. In my life, this has been incredibly instrumental in going to daily Mass, because I want to participate in Holy Communion every single day, as much as I can. I probably more like five times a week. But that, to me, has become incredibly important, and, and it's revolutionized my life in the sense that I'm not like saying to myself, I need to fix all these things. I'm saying I need to go be intimately with Jesus and know that he's doing it for me. He's transforming me from the inside out. To use Lewis's language, you're getting close to the fountain so that the spray can fall on you. Amen to that. But it's interesting, your point there about how baptism, belief, Holy Communion, they're not tremendous tasks that we do. It reminds me from the book of Kings, Naaman, the military commander who had leprosy. And he goes to Elisha 
in the hope of being cured. And Elisha just tells him to go and wash in the Jordan a few times, seven times. And Naaman is super disappointed and he's kind of angry. He said, you know, I expected the man of God to come out and to wave his hand and call upon the name of the Lord. He was expecting a show. And all Elisha told him to do was go down to the river and wash. It was something so simple. And it's actually only when one of Naaman's servants tells him, if he had asked you to do something incredible, some great feat of arms or strength, you would have done it. But he's just asked you to do something really simple. And this is just a beautiful picture of what baptism does to us. Because I don't know what a soul looks like when it's been washed clean of sin. But when I read the story of Naaman about how after he's washed, his flesh is like that of a little baby. That's a vivid picture of the new life that God wants to give me through baptism. That is a great story. I've never read that. Second Kings 5. I like how you said it's so simple, but as, as you're saying it, I'm thinking, yet yeah, for some of us, it's so hard because I have the personality too of, God, tell me I need to save hundreds of thousands of people from poverty. Tell me I need to transform the world. Like that's how I'm going to, uh, that's how I'm going to cleanse myself. That's how I'm going to be worthy or righteous. And yet he says something so simple. Ask for forgiveness. Come to me on a daily basis. Let me love you. These small graces is what he wants from us, not this massive grand gesture. But what he does want for us, and this was one of the other things that stuck out to me in this reading, was he doesn't want half measures. Yes, this is a big theme in this book. So it's not so much that I'm going to do something great, but what he asks of me is to hold nothing back. It was in the chapter where Lewis talks about be perfect. We keep trying to do the impossible. We keep trying to satisfy God enough to keep him quiet and then try and make the rest of our lives our own. And he says that's not only harder than what God actually asks of us, it's actually outright impossible. Isn't, what's the quote? Nothing that isn't killed won't be reborn? Yes. Nothing that hasn't been killed will be raised from the dead. Every, everything. Now we're kind of jumping for a little bit to the great divorce too, but everything needs to die and then be reborn before it can enter into heaven. That means our whole self, completely. That is such a hard thing to do, because our ego resists every step of the way being killed. Exactly. And this taps into another aspect of this book that spoke very loudly to me this time. Lewis's point that there are no small things, there are no small decisions, that every single thing we do, big or small, turns us into a little bit more of a heavenly creature, or a little bit more of a hellish creature. Oh, this was so good. Actually, a parish in Los Angeles has asked me to come and give them some talks next Lent. And I asked to give a talk about Lewis, and specifically on this idea about becoming heavenly or hellish creatures. I just thought that Lent was a really good time to take stock about the creature that we are transforming into. We become a creature that desires heaven, that desires to be with God, that desires to be in communion with God. And that comes about by little decisions we make every single day. And that doesn't mean we earn it or we work for it. God's graces help us along this way to make these choices. But nevertheless, these little choices compound. And this was a sub point that I thought was so important that Lewis made here, compounded interest. We know this with returns in our investment portfolio or retirement funds, how much compounded interest can work in your favor over time. It's the same thing with your choices. The little choices you make in your life 
10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, we'll build on each other for good or bad. The evil choices will go the wrong way and the choices of charity and love will become easier and easier. The choices to forgive will become easier and easier. I just loved how practical that statement was because you're not thinking I need to be able to forgive and love Hitler. You're thinking I just need to do something small here today. For my roommate. For my roommate. And and in David's case, for his podcast partner. Mm -hmm. And over time, he'll be able to get to the bigger ones. Or maybe over time, you'll be able to get to forgiving your podcast partner. I was going to say, maybe this is the big one for me. Who knows? (laughs) After 42 episodes, are you there yet? Not this side of heaven. (laughs) (laughs) That just means you can't let go of me too soon yet. Exactly. St. Jose Maria Escrivar said, don't say this person annoys me. Say this person makes me holy. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) So when we compared notes as to what we thought were the important issues in this book that spoke to us this time, theosis, surrendering it all, and heavenly or hellish creatures. The idea that every small decision we make takes us a little closer to either heaven or hell. It turns us inside. And that God asks us to give him everything. And that if we do that, Jesus will make us perfect. And he will ultimately take us home to heaven and into the life of the Trinity. But what are some of the smaller points that jumped out at you at this reading? I would say the importance of Christian teaching in our own journey, both from a personal perspective and a theological perspective. So from a personal perspective, our desires can go astray. And Christian teaching is nothing more than God, the creator of the universe, who created reality that we are a part of. We are creatures in it. It's nothing more than explaining how we are to interact with that and to live in that and order our loves a proper way. So teaching, which sometimes gets called rules, regulation, legalism, is not arbitrary. It's for our own benefit. It should be a great joy to discipline ourselves in the way that the Christian faith teaches us because it'll allow us to experience beauty so much more. If you think about the Ten Commandments, These are God's rules, but they describe reality. That when people steal, murder, commit adultery... Make false idols. Life is worse. You're telling me when you make an idol out of money, you don't find happiness? I keep wanting God to really test me on that one, but no. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love for him just to give me the chance to know. (laughs) It's not true. That's a good one. So, I, so yeah, in summary, I would say Christian teaching and the importance of it in our lives was a big thing for me. What about you? Well, thinking about that confirmation retreat that I gave the talk at, uh, I'm thinking about love and how Lewis explains that love is not just simply a feeling. It is an act of the will. It is seeking the good of someone else. That's a good one. Also, you can't talk about love without talking about loving your neighbor as yourself. I loved his section where he explained what that actually means, what it means to love someone like you love yourself and to forgive someone as you would forgive yourself. You might not like some of the things that you do, but you always hope that you'll be better in the same way that when someone else sins against you, you don't hate them. You, you just want them to be better. <laughs> you just subtly hit his two huge points. Nice work. Thank you. Liking and loving can be two very different things, and that's okay. You don't always have to like, but you can love. 
And then that that point that the sin and the person are two very different things. We do all those with ourselves so well, but we need to do that for others. Separating the two. Exactly. I loved his his conversation on pride as the greatest sin. It seems obvious to me now, but I remember when I first read that chapter in my junior year of college, it just revolutionized my life because I remember he phrased things in a unique way, but the, the, the gist of the chapter was pride puts you in competition with others and with God, which is in direct contradiction to the greatest two commandments of the Bible. Love your neighbors yourself and love God. If you're prideful, you're always in competitive with your neighbor. If you're prideful, you're not looking up. You're always looking down. That was like, wow. And somewhat related to that as the greatest sin, we so much think of, I think he said in this chapter or one around it, animal sins versus uh, spiritual sins, like the fleshly sins. We so much focus on the sins of the flesh. That would be sexual sins is the most common example. Yet it's this sin of the spirit, this, he calls them diabolical sins, that are the most important ones that we need to focus on. They're both bad, but this is. And, if, and I would say if we, if we recognize that more as Christians, we'd probably be a little bit less judgmental because we'd realize, you know what? Hey, I'm not doing the sexual sins like others are. But guess what? I'm doing the worst sin of them all, just like everybody else is. I'm arrogant. I'm prideful from time to time. And, and that chapter was incredible. I remember hearing one speaker say that if you're dating somebody, you should ask them, what are your character flaws? What are the sins you struggle with? Because if somebody has a strong interior life, a strong faith, they will know what those things are. Lewis compares it to... Uh, a rat catcher knowing rats or Sherlock Holmes knowing Moriarty. How well do you know your real enemy? Oh, that's good. I feel like if I ask that question, that's just going to make finding a wife even harder. <laughs> I would say mine's perfectionism. You know, I'm just too thoughtful, too kind. <laughs> it's like the question <laughs> in an interview. So what are your greatest uh, flaws? You know, I work a little bit too hard. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, yeah, I'm a perfectionist. The next time somebody asks me that question, I'll say, I sometimes lie in interviews. <laughs> that is so good. And then hopefully not actually have to answer the question. I'd, I'd hire you on the spot. That would be so witty and clever. I'd like, this person's got a high IQ. Oh, he's a smart Alec. Yeah, that's okay. I'd like that smart Alec working for me then against me. The final thing that I loved was his, his conversation. He made two chapters on this. It was important to him, part one and part two. If faith is a virtue. You've said this quote before, holding on into the dark what you knew to be true in the light or something like that. That sounds pretty close. <laughs> pretty close. We'll take it. I'm pretty impressed that you could accept pretty close. I'm being charitable. You are. But it's that idea that our emotions are going to betray us. We, we need to, in those moments when those emotions are betraying us, hold on to what we know to be true. Think of Mother Teresa when she wasn't, when she wasn't feeling God in her life, but yet she, she knew her relationship with him and she trusted it and she stayed committed and devoted. And that's what faith is, holding on in the dark what you knew to be true in the light. As I said, over the course of this year, I've read 
far more books about C.S. Lewis than I ever thought I would. And I heard this story from Peter Kreeft, and I thought it would be a good way to end this episode because we have lots of different people listening to this podcast. You're a Western Catholic. I'm an Eastern Catholic. We have Eastern Orthodox listeners, Protestant listeners. So I just thought this would be the perfect story to end this book, a book that was for Lewis all about putting forward a mere Christianity, putting forward a common set of beliefs that Christians have always believed everywhere. He said, After the best conference I ever attended, with two serious theologians each from the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, Evangelical, and mainline Protestant churches, staying all week and talking about all their differences and agreements in a frank and candid but ironic and listening way, everybody constantly and naturally referring to things C.S. Lewis wrote about this and that. Father Joe Fessio got up at the closing session and proposed that we issue a joint statement of agreement and say that what unites us all, despite all our serious differences, is scripture, the first six ecumenical councils, and the collected words of C.S. Lewis. Everybody cheered. (laughs) That is so good. What a way to finish the book, Mere Christianity. As we come to an end here, I like feel some deep need to say something profound, but I've got nothing. This this has been such an amazing journey, and this book has been so incredible, and the listeners have been awesome, and the emails have been such a joy and inspiration to to read throughout this last year. It's like I want to say something, but I've got I'm left somewhat speechless. Well, this isn't the end. This is just the end of season one, and we'll be starting season two. Yes, this is the beginning. Yes, to paraphrase the last battle, this was but the title and cover page. Now we're beginning the real story, and every chapter is going to be better than the last. So good. Listeners, are you excited as I am for The Great Divorce? (laughs) I can hear everyone saying yes. Yeah, yeah. It is going to be so good. Please read it before we go through this. You're going to just be blown away by it. And send us your selfies with the book. Yes. And we're going to be mixing things up. The format is probably going to be a little bit different. A little? It's going to be very different based on what we've talked about, which I'm excited for. I mean, you guys should know this is going to be incredibly different, actually. All right. And you heard us talk about the video series that we produced. Well, that is now just about ready to be launched. And Mere Christianity was pretty much the book behind all of those videos that we did. So there might be another video series in the future where we're drawing primarily from The Great Divorce. Thank you to everyone who sends us messages of encouragement because it makes us actually go ahead and do these things. (laughs) That is so true. It makes David because he does about four times the effort I do. I drink scotch, la croix. La croix. And I talk a little bit, la croix. (laughs) And in the meantime, feel free to contact us on restlesspilgrim.net and Twitter and Instagram at Pints with Jack. And as I said, next episode... It'll be my interview with Joe Heschmeyer, an After Hours episode. And then after that, Matt and I will be beginning The Great Divorce. We'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.